I'm just so happy to be welcoming those of you who are here in the green room of the Veterans Building, and of course to be welcoming those who are listening via a podcast on the San Francisco Ballet's website. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. It's my pleasure to be moderating the Points of View programs, which are produced by the Center for Dance Education, directed by Charles Chip McNeil. And, of course, you know we produce the Meet the Artist interviews, which are held an hour prior to curtain on selected performances. And there are any number of other programs aimed at adult education. There are also a lot of other things that the Center for Dance Education does for youth and children out in the community and bringing them to the ballet. I hope you will go to the website where you can learn more about those programs as well as updates on what the company's up to, on casting, on programming, videos, interviews, spotlight on artist of the month, and so on. The um, blog, Studio 455, is something that's always being updated. There's an interesting article right now by Bruce Sansom, the, um, assistant, to the ballet, assistant to the artistic director and ballet master, uh, about the upcoming program, uh, Raimonda, the third act of Raimonda, which will be seen on program six. In other words, I hope you're keeping up with the ballet through the website as well as uh, on Facebook and apparently on Twitter. That's beyond me. I'm up to Facebook. Um, So again, welcome. And a reminder that this, this interview this evening will be recorded, and you can download it at any time in the very near future. We will have time for questions toward the end of the hour, and we'll try to facilitate those so that they will be clearly understood in the podcast. I have just a couple of announcements and little updates. Of course, I want to remind you that hearing assistance devices are available in the back, if that would enhance your enjoyment this evening. I want to remind you about the Visiting Scholar Program. It's getting closer. It's designed around Program 7, which is the All Balanchine Program. And there are a lot of activities culminating in the Points of View Program, which will be here on Wednesday, April 18th, with Visiting Scholar Beth Cheney. Excuse me. The... Other programming around the Visiting Scholar, which is all detailed in the little brochure that I think most of you were able to pick up, uh, includes a lecture at the Commonwealth Club, and I'm told that there are a few positions or a few um, seats, tickets left, so if you're interested in that, now's the time to get on that. And as you know, if you're not a subscriber, you you will get 30% discount on that evening's performance if you go to the Commonwealth Club lecture. There was a wonderful announcement today. I don't know how many of you get the ballet's um, e-blast updates, but they've just announced more touring news, and this time the company, it is announced, will go this summer to Hamburg and then to Moscow and perform at the Bolshoi Theater. And I can't think of anything more cool for our San Francisco Ballet. So do watch. Go to the website where you can read more news about that. So this evening's program features Program 5, which is another mixed bill of works, including a late 20th century classic, a recently created repertory staple by artistic director and principal choreographer Helgi Thomason, and a world premiere by emerging choreographer Edward Liang. We're very fortunate to have with us this evening ballet master Katita Waldo, recently retired as a principal dancer in her second season as a ballet master for the company. Katita joined the company as an apprentice in 1988 promoted to soloist in 1990, and to principal dancer in 1994. Her repertoire crossed the entire breadth of the San Francisco Ballet repertoire, 
from the modern of William, William Forsyth to Balanchine to the classics, in addition to this wonderful, wonderful portrayal of Myrta in Giselle, she portrayed Princess Aurora in The Sleeping Beauty, to the character of Giselle's mother, and it's quite a broad career. She appeared as Emilia in the filmed version of Lar Lubavitch's Othello. And as I mentioned, her career continues as a teacher and ballet master, overseeing the works of many of the choreographers who pass through the San Francisco Ballet. And so now I'd like to invite Katita to come join me. Hello. Notes on the floor. Um, yes, it's a very poorly kept secret that this is my favorite side, so I always make the guests sit over there. It's all right. <laughs> it's good. Um, I just, that picture I just is so beautiful. It could illustrate a, a, an, an academic book about how it should look when you do that particular pose. Of course, I would quibble, but... <laughs> Um, I thought I will share a, a tale which I'm sure Katita's really tired of hearing, and some of you will have heard it as well, but I can't resist. <laughs> um, back a very long time ago in the 1980s. Not I that long. <laughs> I was teaching ballet history during the summer sessions at San Francisco Ballet School, and I won't pretend that all of my students were enthralled. In fact, it was clear that some of them were using the pretense of stretching on the floor in the back of the room to actually fall asleep. <laughs> but there was one student who didn't fall asleep, who sat up, sometimes even in the front row, and who asked intelligent questions, and who could actually answer questions when I asked them, and who could make articulate, intelligent observations, and, and this person was... Katita. I have no memory of the event. <laughs> and I have always had this feeling that this intelligence and this questioning and curiosity are what informed you as a great dancer going across a broad repertoire. I, I will say that um, the only history, dance history course that I ever enjoyed was yours. So... I thank That's you for that because I was the one stretching in the back when other people were doing the class. So yours well, was very interesting. So. Well, I appreciate hearing that. Thank you. It was not fishing for the compliment. But I also think that it, was, it is clear to many a teacher and mentor that the curious, questioning, interested student of any aspect of the business is going to be one of the successful dancers, and then teacher, and then ballet master. So with that as sort of groundwork, um, a couple years have passed now since you retired from actively performing the classics. Are you still to be seen on stage doing anything? Um, no. Uh, I, Giselle, you mentioned Giselle, and there's actually a funny story behind Giselle because um, I was I I was pregnant with my son, and um, it was I danced up until my fourth month, and um, I needed to stay on salary, and um, Giselle just so happened we were doing Giselle at the end of the season, and um, Helgi very kindly said, well maybe you could do the mother in Giselle. So I didn't have to do anything else. And so I was able to stay on salary. And so now I'm kind of stuck doing that one. Um, <laughs> but, but, but no, um, I have had opportunity. And to be honest, I, I'll do it if I have to, but I'd rather not. And um, I just, it was really fun while it lasted. And I loved it. And if if... I love to act, so I would consider that, but 
New face, new face, okay. new face. All right, we'll we'll let you have that for now. Um, I wonder if you can look back with some sort of detachment now and say, is there a role that jumps out as being either absolutely fabulously wonderful or perfectly awful? Is there a, a style that you preferred? Was there a, some kind of reminiscence? Uh, well, I have many. I have many things to look back on. Um, it did hit me today that, my God, it's been two years. I didn't realize it's been that long, but it has been. Um, I had an interesting moment uh, because the honest truth is I do not miss it. I miss being able to do it tremendously. I miss rehearsing. I miss working with a partner, but I don't, I just don't, mm, no, don't miss it. It was wonderful and I loved it, but mm, yeah. But I did, um, I walked into the theater day before yesterday at the beginning of fifth season, which was one of the ballets that, that I did that Helgi actually created a part for me in, and I teared up. And I, later I was like, well, well, what was that about? I don't want to do it. And I realized it, it, it wasn't that I wanted to do it. It was that I loved it when I did it. And it was so much fun. And it just, the music, I didn't want to be Francis, who you will see tonight, and is amazing. But I just had this moment of, oh, I remember that. That was great. So I, Fifth Season is actually a ballet I really, really enjoyed. Um, I always enjoyed doing Forsyth, except for Vertiginous Thrill, which was the green 2 because that was just so hard. Although you felt, well, you finished that ball and you went, yeah, done something. I did something. But uh, in the middle, um, I got to do Swan Lake a long time ago. Uh, Odette, Odile. Always a dream. Always wanted to do that. Um, Amelia in Othello. I also got to do Desdemona, which I also enjoyed. That was an interesting contrast um, because I was... Uh, originally when Lar Lubavitch came to set the ballet of Othello, I was, um, he had me learning Desdemona and looking at Amelia. And eventually I said, well, do you want me to really concentrate on Amelia? He said, no, 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 don't bother. Just do Desdemona. So I did Desdemona. And then when the filming came along, um, I don't even remember why, Lar was very nice and he liked me a lot. So he said, well, I want you to do Amelia in a filming. And I remember part of me being like, <laughs> it's not the dance part. I don't want to do it. You know, I wanted to do the Desdemona part because she danced and, and she got to be fragile and delicate and it was so fun. But honestly, even though Amelia's part was less prominent, I can't tell you which one I preferred. Amelia was this tortured, racked soul, which was really fun. <laughs> and Desdemona was this pure, simple thing. The partnering was lovely and everything, but it was kind of, Emotionally, it was very easy to do Desdemona. And Amelia was a whole different thing. And I remember coming off, there was one big potato that you do with Iago. And I remember coming off stage after doing that going, you know, it was like, it took me 10 minutes to get over it. And I love that, you know, where Desdemona's like, okay, I'm dead now. All right, yeah, let's go have a drink or something. Yeah, it's gone. And Amelia was like, oh, ooh. So I love those. And uh, there are a million other things. I'd love to say that I like doing Myrta, but I didn't. <laughs> Actually, it's not true. I liked doing Myrta once the dancing was done, but it's some of the hardest dancing I've ever done. And you get to the last part with the core, and you're just like, <laughs> <laughs> hoping to God you don't look like that. But that's how you feel. And, um, yeah, it was... Um, it actually came as a surprise to me when I retired. Alan Ulrich wrote a really nice, wonderful piece, and he said that one of the things he remembered the most was my Myrta, and I remember going, really? <laughs> okay. But anyway, so. That's one of the things I remember. Loved your Myrta. Thank you. I'm, I'm so proud, because <laughs> that's not how I felt. Good. Yeah. So you... Um, Transitioned, I guess is a, I'm not sure that's a real verb, but into the ballet master role and into the teaching role. And 
I have long held a theory that ballet masters are born and not made. And I wonder if there was a moment, an aha moment, anywhere in your career, even when you were a six-year-old starting your ballet lessons, when you knew that, that, that the requirements of the ballet master would be a fit for you. Well, had I known then what all of the requirements of a ballet master were, I would say no. But um, I was actually really lucky. Well, first of all, I've always been bossy and a know-it-all. So I always look at other people and go, yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, and you're not doing that right, whatever it is. So, I mean, maybe I didn't say it. Hopefully I didn't say it, but I did think it often. Yeah, it's not, nah, it's not right. You're off the music or whatever. But um, I was really lucky. Um, I, I had a, an opportunity to start thinking about having to stop dance early on because I had back issues, which I thought was what would bring me down, didn't with something else. But um, I started to think, oh my God, if I can't do this, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I had taught classes here and there, and I really enjoyed it. I loved working with with people and and helping them to to learn how to use their bodies better. And so I thought, I remember going in and talking to Helgi and saying, you know, I think, you know, the time's going to come, but I'd like you to consider me sometime for maybe running the school. Because I didn't, I knew I didn't want to, I don't like routine. I hate routine. Um, and I just, I'm bored to death. I did a couple summer courses as a teacher and I just was like suicidal at the end of the week. Three classes a day, same thing every day. And even though you find different things, a lot of the times you find yourself saying the same thing again and again and again. And, you know, there's a, uh, a uh, Classes have a, a specific order of combinations that you have to give and you can vary the combinations, but it's always the same. So it's like, ah. Uh, don't want to do that. It was too constricting. But I didn't know that at the time. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I could do, if I had some administrative work as well and some creative work, thinking about, you know, well, what would the kids do in the training program or whatever? And I thought about that. And I talked to Helgi about it. And he very wisely was like, hmm, okay. Well, yeah. So, fine. Anyway, in the meantime, um, I stumbled, and I do say stumbled, upon an opportunity. I hope I'm not talking too much. Okay, you tell me too. You guys can be like, enough. Um, I stumbled on an opportunity. I, was, I, I walked into the company lounge one day, and Ashley Weeder, who was ballet master at the time, he's now director of Joffrey Ballet, was in there with Yuri Posikov. And Yuri was going, I don't know what to do. I need someone in May. I have no one. And Yuri was saying, well, I don't know. I, yeah, you know, I'm not available. And I came in and I said, well, what are you talking about? And Yuri said, I need someone to set the ballet. And I thought, well, we, I think we were doing, I don't remember what ballet we were doing, but I wasn't involved. What was it? Well, that was, but the ballet in May, the last full length that we were doing in May, I wasn't involved in. So I thought, and I, I realized, I'm not, I'm available in May. I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll do it. What are you talking about? And he said, I want to sit Magrito Mania. And that was a ballet that he did for the 75th. Um, was it the, no, it wasn't. It was way past. We had a, a new choreographers, Christopher Stoll and Yuri Posikoff and, and somebody else created some new works for the company and he did Magrito Mania. And I, I had been in it. I learned the girl in red and, and I thought, well, I was in it. How hard could it be? I'll do it. And I think this was in April. And he needed someone in May. And I said, sure, hey. And he said, well, you, you're free in May. And he kind of looked at me and was like, you okay? And I said, well, what company? And I'm thinking Portland or, you know. Omaha. Omaha, <laughs> you know. And he says, Bolshoi. <laughs> and I kind of went, okay. And I thought. I'll do it. And he kind of looked at me and I said, I'll, I'll do it. And he said, okay. So I did. And I went. And I spent, it was my first experience teaching a ballet. And I went for four weeks to the Bolshoi. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, 
And, uh, yeah, I showed up and I had to teach the ballet and I had to be tough. I had to fire a major principal dancer and all sorts of stuff. It was crazy. But I also loved every living second. I have never been so tired. I have never hurt so much because I had to demonstrate everything. Men's parts, women's parts, partnering. Um, Yuri showed up 10 days before. And the way they do it in Russia, you come in, you set a ballet, you rehearse it, and then you perform it. So at the end of the four weeks, there's a premiere. And uh, so I had to get it all ready, get everything ready before Yuri showed up, which I did. And that was my first experience. And that was when I went, this is really cool. I like this. And then subsequently to that, I came back home. And um, we were in New York, actually. And Christopher Wielden, who I had worked with before, said, um... I'm going to be setting a, a, creating a new work on the Bolshoi. And I went, uh-huh. And he, he's like, well, you know, I was going to bring one of an American, you know, a, a Russian. I was going to bring a Russian assistant. But it was recommended to me that I not, that I bring an American. And I know you worked with Yuri. Would you be interested? And I went, Yes. So I went with Chris, and we had to fix it because he had to create a brand new work on them, and he had to go for two weeks in the winter before Nutcracker, and then for another three weeks in January, which interfered with my season. But I went and I talked to Helgi, and I said, can we just figure something out, please? And he, again, very, very generously figured it out. I wasn't in the gala that year because I was in Russia. And I went with Chris. And for those of you who are interested, there is a documentary that was made of that process that is not available in the United States. It was done by the ballet boys that are two, two people, two, two guys that Chris knows who documented the whole thing. It won an Emmy for best foreign arts documentary, but it's not available in the U.S. However, it is available on YouTube and it's hilarious and stressful. I haven't seen it because I'm too stressed out. I've seen bits, but but it's really interesting if you want to see the process of that. But anyway, sorry, I'm getting back to the point how I got here. After that, Helgi said, while I was still dancing, would you be interested in, in the 75th was coming up, would you take on doing Ballet Mistress Duty for a couple of our ballets? And I said, of course. So honestly, I've had about five years of working in a different mm -hmm. capacity. Mm -hmm. I had a real velvet transition as opposed to many. Mm -hmm. But even so, there have been some bumps. But long story, sorry, yeah took a long time to tell you that one, but that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing now. Uh, <laughs> You're a great storyteller. Thank you. I, I just want to repeat what you said in case anybody w was not clearer, and that is that this thing is available to see on YouTube. On YouTube, yeah. If you look up, and it's called um, Misericords is the name of the ballet, but you look up Christopher Wielden, making of, you'll probably come across mm -hmm. it. And it's, uh, I don't know how long it is. It's in 15-minute increments with the full ballet that he created at the end. So if you're interested in mm -hmm. seeing what he did at the end, it's there. But it's very, very cool. We will have to go look that up. Well, then um, moving forward, because here you are being a ballet master, um, one, one or two sentences. Have you continued to do any teaching, and do you still enjoy that? Yes, uh, I teach the company. Uh, I teach company class from time to time. Um, I'd love to do more of it if I could, but there are two, Helgi likes to teach and there are two other ballet masters and we have other people that teach as well. But yes, I do and I love it. Um, so, yeah. Clearly you love teaching the company maybe more than you liked teaching the syllabus. Very much so. It's a whole different story yeah. and it's a whole different thing and um, yeah. I, I very much enjoy that. I, I work, I like working with, I like, you know, you have the young dancers that are just starting out that are, have come out of a school and need a little help, or you have somebody that's taking on a new role and they need a little guidance, and I love that. And I love working with choreographers because it's not the same thing. I have to learn the choreography along with the dancers, so it's never boring. In fact, I have to learn more than I ever had to as a dancer, <laughs> so it's never boring. Let's move into Program 5, and we have a few pictures. One more look at that. Um, the program opens, I believe, with the fifth season, which was yes. created, I believe, in 2006, I think. 
um, Helgi's piece that year. And there's a very good story about it in the program notes, so I'm not going to belabor it, but he sort of stumbled across this music, apparently, and contacted the composer and said, I want to do your work. And the composer suggested some pieces, and this is what came out of it. And, oops, if I push the wrong button, we'll be really sorry. Um, Juan in one of the mail rolls. And clearly there's one of those incredible pas de deux. Juan, Juan, Damien. Oops. Oh, and then a video clip. There we go. So let's look at the video clip, and then maybe you can... Am I going to cry again? Tantalizing. Yes. So, a few words about it. Um, well, it's it's um, it's very atmospheric. I love the music. I think that's one of the reasons that I teared up. It's because I love the music so much. Um, let's see. I think it's one, two, three. I think it's five five uh, sections before the finale, and it. Um, each section is very different. The music is very different, and the sensation of the dance is very different. Uh, the costumes are all the same, so the, what's important is the mood that is created by the dancers and by the music, the lighting also, and the set. Very sparse, uh, sparse very simple, um, but very lush. The music is lush. The movement is lush. That last part of it is incredible. So it starts out very... Um, there's a tango section that's kind of, I think it's the third or fourth piece in, but the beginning is kind of very tense and very um, savage a little bit. It's uh, two people facing each other across the stage and kind of having it out, I guess. I don't know. That was my part. Really fun. And um, <laughs> and then it, it goes on to a section for two couples um, that's kind of more playful and more waltzy. Then a small pas de deux that's kind of, it's called romance. I think that part is called romance. So it's very soft and gentle. And then uh, uh, the tango, the four, the three men, and the, the lovely lady. And uh, I'm not going to say too much because I want you to see it. But uh, it's it's got many different moods. And it's interesting because the costumes are all the same. So you're not being guided by... You know, well, this is the pink costume, so it's soft, and this is the red costume, so it's not soft. It's it kind of the dancing, the movement, and and the music and lights are all you need to know. So, I'm going to move on to the next piece, but then maybe we can put them in contrast with each other. The next piece is one of my personal favorites. We're going to get to symphonic dances last. Actually, this is not next on the program, but this is the next one we're going to talk about. This is Jerome Robbins, The Music of Philip Glass. It was premiered in 1983 by absolute happenstance. I happened to be in New York and needed to go to see the ballet, and we went to ABT, and we went to New York City, and we went to Ailey, and we went to Dance of Harlem, and, and we saw this when we went to New York City Ballet. It was just there. And it wasn't until retrospect that I realized what I had seen and that it really had stuck with me. Um, that's the only picture we have of it. Um, it's an amazing, fascinating, full... I mean, we, we would call it a full company piece because there's just a lot of dancers. Contrasting moods, sections, this unusual music. Well, it was unusual... 20 plus years ago. Um, so we've got these, not counting the symphonic dances. That's a topic 
all by itself. Contrast these two pieces, Helgi's and this one, just in impact. Well, for for one thing, Helgi's is a quieter ballet. It's a it's it's got both of them have moods, definite definite moods. But glass pieces is more. Um, it's very abstract. The dancers, as you can see in this, are essentially wearing what would be rehearsal clothes. So it's parts of it are very um, casual. And there's a lot of elements of, of structure bursting out of, of chaos and casualness. Uh, people walking around and suddenly dance bursting and, and patterns bursting. Um, fifth season is more of a... Um, a, a ballet. It's more. It's a more of a ballet. This is more of a of a, an experience. It's a uh, um, lots of people. Lots of people. Uh, second movement is beautiful, and it would be the most reminiscent to fifth season. I would say if you had to to contrast. It's the, you, you performed that. I did. Day. I did the second movement, and actually, in the uh, it always surprises me to see it downstairs. There's a picture of a couple um, standing, and it's uh, it's this ballet, and it's um, uh, it looks gray in that because it is because it's black and white. But the second movement is blue. It's a blue unitard and silhouettes in the back, and it's very quiet and very static. The first movement and this and the last movement are masses of people. Moving, moving, constant motion, constant motion, everything happening, people coming in, people coming out. Second movement is a couple, sometimes doing nothing at all, with a, a, a silhouette of uh, almost hieroglyphs. I think it's called Agnaughton. Uh, yes, it's from an piece. opera. Yeah. Agnaughton. So right. it's very Egyptian, Egyptian with, with very... Uh, poses that are very hieroglyphic and with women in the back that are doing a, a pattern of silhouetted work that is a, a backdrop to the dance. Um, they're, they're very different ballets. And, but, but they do have, there's, um, especially the second movement in, in this, there's a, an intimacy that's unusual, uh, with this one because it's such a massive piece. Mm-hmm. But it, Fifth Season is, a, is at times, the pas de deux are very, very intimate. They're very personal. And the second movement in this, I think, mm-hmm. is also, it invites you to come in and to get away from the crowd, which is what you've seen in the first movement and we'll see in the third, and brings you in, which is then why the third movement kind of blasts you back again because mm-hmm. it's a totally different story. Well, then there's this amazing, and this concludes the program, actually, right? Yes. And it is a closer. It is a closer. In the business, a closer is one of those pieces that just sends you out all jazzed up. The centerpiece is the world premiere by Edward Liang. We have actually seen his work at San Francisco Ballet before, can you mention the two pieces? Um, I only know on, the one. I can't think of the names of them. They've been I seen know, on the galas. I know Distant Cries. Mm-hmm. Distant on the most cries. recent gala. Yeah, and I can't remember what the other one is, but Distant Cries was a pas de deux that Yuan Yuan Tan and Damien Smith performed. Beautiful. Um, and and I can't remember a couple, the other It one. was two or three years back, and yeah, I can't remember either. It's Sorry. in the program notes. Um, so it was, t- and, and also Edward's... Um, Biography is pretty well summarized in the program notes. I think he studied it at San Francisco Ballet. He may have passed through San Francisco Ballet. He He studied at Marin Ballet. Right, he did. He's a native. Mm -hmm. He's a native. So that's kind of a fun thing to have someone circle around. He's been to a a long career in New York. New York City Ballet. Time in Europe, I think, Mm -hmm. at the Netherlands Ballet. Mm -hmm. And it was time for him to do a piece here. And... We, many of you will remember, I hope, when we had Martin West visiting us and he said his favorite piece of music in all the world, the thing that made him want to be a conductor, is this piece of music when he was 16 years old. And so the fact that he's getting to conduct that music this year is very special for him. Well, here is this piece of music. Wow. Yeah. 
And we do have just a couple of rehearsal shots that maybe give us... Oh, I'm sorry, I have to back up. This is the music. This is Sergei Rachmaninoff. And this is a personal funny story. My parents were teachers in North Carolina. And this is in the 1930s, late 30s. And Sergei Rachmaninoff toured the United States doing piano recitals. And he performed at a college, either where they were or near where they were or something. And somebody shot this snap of him coming off the stage and walking into the wings. And my, it surfaced in my mother's effects and with the, the name written on the back. It wasn't his signature. It was just his name and the date written on the back. And so it's one of my little family treasures is this picture of Rachmaninoff. <laughs> anyway, there he is. And here we have a rehearsal shot. We have, a, I think, just a couple. That's uh, Doris Andre uh, being partnered by Ed Liang, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's it. And there's another one. It looks like he's still a very physical choreographer. Extremely. Extremely. I, I would also say that um, um, Ed Liang has got to be one of the most astounding partners in ballet ever. He credits Jock Soto, who was a dancer with New York City Ballet, who is also known as being mm-hmm. one of the most astounding partners on earth. And he truly, truly is... It was a challenge for the dancers because it's so effortless for him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he's very um, organic in his movement, but his movement is very unusual. And it, it really was a, a, a challenge for a lot of the dancers to, to learn to partner with, with the fluidity that he has and to move with the fluidity mm-hmm. that he has. He's organic in a way that's, that's very different. Would you characterize the music and characterize the piece, maybe without totally giving it away, but just what put us in the picture? It's, it's a big piece. It's three movements, and each movement, uh, the central piece of each movement is a pas de deux, each one very, very different. Um, there is uh, the second movement is uh, Sophie Anne, Sylvie, and Teet Helmets with with uh, a core of girls um, in the picture, and he described it as being um, very. Uh, this is the realm of this of this female, and that she's making everything around her so that everybody in in around her, all the women and the men, are made by her was this idea that she controls this environment. That was a concept that he discussed when he was making that one. The first interesting thing, and I highly recommend, by the way, um, that you see more than one cast. Because with most choreographers, they'll create a pas de deux and a first cast. And you'll always have a second or a third cast because obviously if something happens to the first cast or if they're in other ballets, you have to have a backup. Ed created two different pas de deux. The first couple that the couple you will see tonight is Yuan Yuan Tan for the first movement is Yuan Yuan Tan and Vito Mazeo. And um, the second cast for them is Francis Chung and Jaime Garcia. And the pas de deux are totally different. The steps are different, the musicality is different, the whole thing is different because he created it on the dancers that he was working with, which makes it a challenge as a ballet master when you have to have a third cast. You're like, well, what version do you want them to learn? Um, but, but nonetheless, it's radically different and really worth seeing because the, 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 the flavor of each of those couples is Completely different. Um, same with the, the last pas de deux. The second pas de deux is more um, different temperaments, completely different, because you have Sophie Anne Sylvie and Teet, who you will see tonight, and then um, Sarah Van Patten and Anthony Spaulding. But the, the steps are pretty much the same with some minor variations here and there. Um, f- for the third couple, uh, Masha and uh, Vitor. Originally, the second cast was Lorena Fejo and, uh, and Pierre-Francois Villanova, but uh, Lorena, am I? 
It's okay. She's on pregnancy. She's on maternity maternity leave. So she isn't involved. Um, so he had created a completely different pot de for Pierre and Lorena. So we've been working with Dana Genshaft and Pierre Francois to, uh, to get them on. Um, it's been, they've had very little time, but, um, I'm, we're hoping that they'll come on the second week. But again, totally different pot de deux. So really we're seeing more than other ballets where you always get a different dancer and they're always different, but in this case it's different choreography. So. I'm Very cool. Fascinated to know what happens when we evolve. Next season comes along, the following season, and another couple has to go in. Well, say. if Ed comes back, he'll make uh, he'll make adjustments for whatever couple he has. That's one of the big things for him is that he wants his dancers comfortable. So, um, Masha is a very different dancer than Lorena. Um, Masha is, you know. Gumby and Lorena's a more uh, powerful and substantial and earthy dancer and it just it, he created something that was very much for Lorena and then something very much for 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 Masha so I'm hoping I think Lorena will be coming back and so if you do come and see this and like it come back and see it again when Lorena's around because it's oh, beautiful but very different what does it sound like it's great. The music is, oh my God. First movement, well, all of them, all of the movements. Um, I found the, the music for the Pottered and the first movement in particular, I couldn't be in rehearsals without singing the whole thing. And it reminded me a little bit of, for those who might know, the Franco Zeffirelli, Romeo and Juliet. There are aspects of it that the music for that Pottered just, I actually in my notes, there are little sections where I'm like, Zeffirelli number one and Zeffirelli number two, which mean that they do this particular step on this particular piece of sound that of music that sounds like that's reminiscent to that but lush and beautiful third movement percussion to die for you know the very finale you're like oh my god it's incredible it's just huge and beautiful the orchestra sounds amazing they just are doing a beautiful job so so on this evening we have jenkins and glass and rachmaninoff I think it's going to be pretty orally rich. Yes, yeah, I think so. Um, Rachmaninoff is is um, well, we, we we mentioned minimalism earlier. Both the f- uh, fifth season and glass pieces. I don't want to say they're sparse because they're not. Especially glass pieces is huge, but it's very simple. It's there's the rhythms, the very very simple rhythms that you follow. Fifth season has very um, simple lines of melody, and then Rachmaninoff, the the Rachmaninoff has just waves of sound and music and notes and 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 it's it's very colorful. Glass pieces and and uh, fifth season, I think they lend themselves more. They marry themselves in a way to the images more. So the, to me, the, the, the movement describes the dance, whereas with symphony or symphonic dances, they, they're partners in a way that's very different because the music is so ornate. It's not um, a backdrop or a stage. It's a partner. And fifth season, fifth season and glass pieces are both that way too, but in a different way. They're just more, more like here we are. This is what we are, and then the the dance is laid on top of it. And with Rachmaninoff, it's the dance and the music all like scrunched up together. That's what I would say. Hope I'm right. And you're not like, what is she talking about? <laughs> no. When um, you have been one of the ballet masters attached to this piece, um, I think the folks might find it kind of interesting to follow a piece. Let's say last summer, or maybe even before last summer, you're called into a meeting, artistic staff meeting, and the deck of cards gets shuffled, and you're informed that you will, or do you get a chance to request a choreographer? Um, you get the assignment. Yes. Yeah. You there, you there, you there, and you and there. And then um, what happens to the piece? How does it evolve? 
It depends on the piece. Um, if we're doing something like glass pieces, Betsy Erickson has been in the company for a long time, and she's we've done glass pieces a lot, and she's always been in charge of it, so she's very well acquainted with it. And um, but every time we revive a Jerome Robbins piece or a Balancing Trust piece, a person from the Balancing Trust has to come and choose the dancers that will be in it or approve the dancers that have been chosen. They set it even though it's been done before because there are new dancers in the company. So they they come in and they set the ballet and then they put it away and then it's the ballet master's job when it's time to put it back together again and then the, that person will come back and approve it. It's similar with a, a new piece, except with the new piece the choreographer comes in and creates the work. And so um, Ed Liang came in the summer, and he spent three weeks uh, creating the piece that you will see today. And and then he came back. He came back on the ninth. I think he was here on the ninth, working with the dancers to we the ballet masters. I'm co-ballet mastering on it. There are two of us working on it: Anita Pachotti and myself. And um, our job was to put it back together, hopefully before he got here. But uh, because of the constraints of our schedule, not quite, um, but enough. You know, it's like, oh, we got one rehearsal for that section. And, and then, uh, oh, my God. But, um, yeah, and then he's supposed to, he comes in or the choreographer comes in and just puts the finishing touches on it. In Ed's case, he came back, like I said, on the 9th. It's today, the, what is it today, the 21st. So he had plenty of time to really work on it, which is rare, very rare. That's sort of a relative concept, plenty of time. Yes. That was less yeah. than two weeks. Yeah. Well, huh. yeah. Yeah, our, our, the San Francisco Ballet schedule, this is one of those things where um, I just had no idea as a dancer, what the ballet masters go through. Um, you know, as a dancer, you're in charge of just remembering your choreography, and that's great. As a ballet master, you have to make sure the ballet is ready to go. It's ready to go. And, you know, you have to start working the program before. Um, when you have, we have t- programs five and six have two premieres, and they're both big with lots of dancers, and um, you know, you have to call rehearsals and you go in and say, can I please have a rehearsal for the first movement? No, sorry, you can't. Why? Well, because they're dancing in this or they're rehearsing this and they can't, and they're performing tonight, so they can't rehearse today. How am I supposed to get my ballet together? Well, we'll just, you know, we'll do what we can. And we have an, a killer, amazing rehearsal person, Alan Villarreal, who tries to schedule what everybody needs, but... It's really hard, and I did not realize. Dancers are like, yeah, yeah, I just go to rehearsal, learn my stuff, it'll be fine. And the ballet masters are like, um, could we, like, run the ballet now, like, today? And dancers are like, yeah, it'll be fine. It's not till for two weeks. And the ballet master's like, but I got to see it now. Ed shows up on Friday. I got to know what you know. Yeah, it's kind of, oh, it's intense. And they're like, yeah, but I'm tired. I don't care. I have to see it now. So I have sympathy for both now in ways that I didn't before. Yeah. So the piece is um, created in the studio by the choreographer. Um, When do you or how do you have anything to do with some of the production details? Um. I don't, actually. Uh, Ed is very interactive, so he's asked for both Anita's and my input with things like, how does that light look okay? What do you think of the color of the costumes and things? But um, the choreographer, pretty much, it's his whole it's his whole bailiwick. And he works with the designer, and he works with a lighting designer, costume designer, set designer, and he comes up with a concept. And pretty much for us, it's just... You just take care of the steps and make sure that the dancers know the music, which is the hardest part, especially with... Um, Rachmaninoff wasn't so hard. Uh, for those of you who saw number nine, oh, my God, that was a nightmare. The music was really difficult. Choreographers sometimes have a really interesting way of hearing music, and uh, it's very different than... Well, you have... In, in Ed's case, I think he's got 22 dancers something like that in his piece. And each of them hears different things, but Ed hears one thing, and they're all supposed to do what Ed's doing, but they don't hear what he's hearing, and and they all have to be together, and 
And it's the ballet master's job to figure out how to get the dancers to hear what the choreographer's hearing, which is, I find that the hardest thing. I find that absolutely the hardest thing. Because mm -hmm. the music is in eights, but the choreographer choreographed it in threes. And, you know, the music's going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And the choreographer's choreographed one, two, three, one, two, three. And everyone's like, well, but it's an eight. And, yeah, it's, and trying to get them to all hear that the same way. Speaking like of how to get them to hear it, you uh, did this rehearse to a piano reduction? No, a lot of our pieces do. We have uh, the music is is transposed into piano and it's played by a pianist in our rehearsals, which actually is a good thing because we get used to different tempos. Uh, we use CD for this, um, so the dancers are very much used to hearing the orchestra, but they're also used to hearing one tempo, the same tempo every time. And when you get a live orchestra, hmm. <laughs> we have an amazing conductor, I have to say. Martin West is unbelievable. The orchestra, I, I've been really happy. I've worked with conductors where we worked on a CD and the stuff I was hearing in the CD that I relied on to let me know when I had to do X, Y, or Z with the orchestra, I couldn't hear it all. And, and that can be very discombobulating. You're used to hearing these drums that tell you when you have to do this, and suddenly the drums aren't there, and you're like, well, I don't know. Um, our orchestra sounds exactly like the CD. Tempos vary. Uh, we had a, a, a bit of a, an issue in the orchestra rehearsal because it was too slow, uh, parts of it, and the dancers were like... <laughs> and they were so used to the CD that they couldn't. They, they just couldn't, but... But Martin's done a beautiful job, and the music sounds incredible. So I think it's, it's going to be good. I think That's it. It's going to be great. I just know it. I, I know it. I know it, too. Uh, we have saved a few minutes for the audience to ask questions. So I'm going to let people raise their hands, and then I'm going to repeat the question. And there was a hand that went up in the back. Can you speak up and... What a good question. Yeah. Um, compare a world premiere, uh, how it is the, the year that it's premiered, and then it comes back next year. And then let's take a piece that's put away for a number of years and then comes back. How does that feel? How does that go? Premieres, most of the time, feel like this. Ah! I kid you not. It's for everyone involved, ballet masters, choreographer, dancers. You're just like, God, please let it be okay. Um, second year, you're like, yeah, I know this. Yeah, no problem. And it's, uh, I actually joked with Anita today. We finished the dress rehearsal and it was really good. Great dress rehearsal. And she said, yeah, well, there, you know, there, uh, there are still a few things. And I said, yeah, we'll get to them next year. So the next year, it's like putting on a slipper that you're very comfortable with. When you've put a ballet away for a while, usually the dancers have changed. Some, um, you know, are people that have done it many times, but you have new core or you have new people doing a new role. So you don't have the stress so much of what are the steps and what's the music and I can't hear it right. It's more just a matter of teaching new people to do the part. Um, but the, the first year is, is pretty much the most uh, exhilarating. I guess I'll put it that way. I would just editorialize that critics um, and and audience members oftentimes look at a piece a second year and see things differently. And I'm always convinced that it's because the dancers have settled in, have mellowed, have become yeah. more confident. I think that's a lot of it. I mean, we've had ballets that number nine, number nine premiered last year, and it was... Um, hopefully not from your standpoint, <laughs> but from ours, all of ours, nightmare from hell. And this year it was like, yeah, whatever. You know, it was just like, oh, really? This was that hard? What was so hard about it? Although it was still hard this year, but uh, it was just a different, different story. I saw a few other hands. Is it written 
down in any way, or are you all just supposed to remember what happened? The ballet is created, and how do you remember what happened? A choreographer will come in, and for every piece that we do, even a revival, uh, usually this happens in the summer, uh, before our touring season. And uh, at the end of the period that a choreographer or a person who's setting a ballet is there, we'll record it with video in a studio. And then you have to piece it together when you come back. There are always changes. And this goes along with the question you asked. The second year, you have a performance tape. And ideally, in a performance tape, everything's been cleaned up. So it's a lot easier to put something back together from a performance tape than it is from the rehearsal tapes because there are still mistakes. And, and number nine, again, case in point, when I had to put it together the first year, I had two videos with completely different timing and completely different arms here and there, and I had to figure out, well, I guess I'll pick that one. Um, do you have written notes that you delight? Yes, on? yes. We also every ballet master there there are um, there are two types of choreographic notation. One is called lab notation, and I can't remember what the other one is called. Benish Benish notation that you have to go and you study. But for those of us people who just barge into the job, you know, fresh out of dance, you come up with your own. And um, I actually, Nicolas Blanc, uh, who used to dance with the company, is now a ballet master with Joffrey. And he was visiting recently. We were comparing notes about how we write things down. And you just come up with your own stuff. It's like, and I have a little circle here that means turn this way. And I have a little pencil person going like this. And you just make up whatever it is that you need to help you remember what the choreography is along with a video and with, um, you know, I have things like I'll write the steps down because I, I, I'll write what the steps are and then I have a number with a circle above which means that you do this on that count. But I made all that up myself. But as long as it works for me, we're fine. So. And last but not least, the dancer who yes. is performing it and has performed it before has an absolutely unique yes. thing going yeah. on. Yeah, and that's the big thing, especially with pas de deux. Pas de deux are the easiest because you just put the tape on and the dancers are like, oh, yeah, I remember that, and they'll come back to it. But with group numbers, it's difficult because, like, oftentimes, especially if it's done quickly, well, that wasn't the arm. I didn't do that arm. And you look at the video and everybody's doing different arms. So you, it's like, well, uh, yeah, you're all doing different arms. So let's do this one. Okay. Well, I didn't do that one. I know you didn't, but you're going to do it now. Okay. I want everybody the same. So yeah, it's I have a vivid memory of a, but the count was down. No, the accent no, was up. Accent no, accent is up. Down. No, I we always did it, it down. Yeah. You always did it down. You were wrong. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah. Um, we have time for one more question. Yes. Why did when you were staging? When work, I was staging Magrita Mania, right? right. Um, Why did the dancer get? She fired? didn't exactly get fired. She got moved to third cast, and it was because my experience working. Uh, at that time, things have changed, and the dancers are very different. But our company has a, it's we move. We don't just pose. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of you've seen the things that we do. We do a lot of different things. It's not just classical ballet. At the Bolshoi, and in general, they were more used to doing classical ballet, and it was pose. Step, 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 pose. They didn't know how to connect the movement exactly. So they'd do a step and then they'd go on to the next step. And for, for Yuri's ballet, you needed to connect the steps. You couldn't just pose and then you had to go from here and then do something to get into the next movement. And this, this young woman was beautiful, but I didn't have a lot of time. And after about three days, she just wasn't getting the movement when the second and third cast behind her were. And so I had to tell her, I said, you know, I'm really sorry, but um, I'd love to have you stay, but I can't, I can't, I have to work with people that are getting this quicker. And, and she got very offended and said, well, I'm going to go speak to the director. And I said, that's okay, I already did. And that was the end of that. <laughs> 
So, yeah, it was... She doesn't like me very much. <laughs> I'm sorry. She was really sweet. We have, I'm so sorry to say, come to the end of our hour, and I want to thank Katita Waldo, ballet master...